Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. While the Trump regime has ended the hate-fueled machinery of lies and disinformation around immigrants in America has not. To look at the sources and impacts of this machine, we've invited Shauna Sigoko, Director of Digital Storytelling at Define American Now. Theory chanted by white supremacists, embraced by killers, used for hate for generations. If you're Tucker Carlson, you embrace it again and again and again. Sexism, homophobia, and political extremism score hits on YouTube. Even though the site has plenty of high-quality content, it's the extreme videos that attract audiences and turn big profits for the channel owners and for the site itself. There is a web of hate in America, and FAIR is the face of it. Well, FAIR is probably the organization most responsible for injecting hatred into the debate over immigration reform in this country. Define American, the organization I work at, is a narrative change organization. So we really believe that in order to change immigration policy, first we really need to change the conversation about this issue uh, in the American public. Hi, I'm Shauna Sigilko, and I'm building tools for marginalized communities to combat myths and disinformation online. Sorry, not sorry. Shauna, thank you so much for being here. First of all, can you tell us a bit about Define American and what it does? Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm such a big fan and very excited to be here. So Define American, we've been around since 2011. We were founded by a man named Jose Antonio Vargas. Jose is an undocumented American, but he's also a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. When he came out about his status as an undocumented immigrant, he did it in a very atypical way. He did it on the cover of Time magazine. And that one act of courage was really the foundation of Define American. A lot of undocumented folks around the country started sharing their stories. And the idea of our organization, we really believe that we can change culture through stories. And once we change culture and the media narrative around immigration, 
then we have a chance at impacting policy. We're a narrative change organization and we work with different types of media towards that goal. We have a division that works with writers and showrunners in Hollywood to advocate for more accurate and humanizing storytelling of immigrants' narratives in film and television. We have a journalism pillar that works with editors and reporters to provide them with better resources for immigration coverage. My work is around digital storytelling. So just a little bit of personal history. I came to Define American actually as a documentary filmmaker. I was working in non-scripted television and then video journalism. And around 2016, during that horrific election cycle, I decided that I really wanted to transition to the nonprofit sector, specifically around immigration narratives. I started working at Define American around that time and producing mostly documentaries for digital consumption around the immigrant experience. A few years went by and we realized that we weren't permeating to the right audiences online. So we had some really great distribution partners like Teen Vogue and now this and Huffington Post. Definitely sound like I'm bragging right now, but there's a point to me naming all those brands. We had them as partners to distribute our work, but we started realizing that we weren't really reaching the people that we wanted to reach people who we needed to shift their viewpoints on these underrepresented stories. So that's really what gave birth to this research report. It's called Immigration Will Destroy Us and Other Talking Points, Uncovering the Tactics of Anti-Immigration Messaging on YouTube. And our goal with this report simply was to better understand how immigration narratives are impacting Americans across YouTube. We hear a lot in the work that we do in activism in this space about changing narratives. Can you just for my audience, tell us what that means? That actually is a pretty big question. The stories that we see represented in different medias, right? It could be on the radio, it could be in film, television, online. These stories have power. They shape the way that we view the world. They inform archetypes, how we think of different groups. They can either complicate our perceptions of groups that we're not part of, or they can essentialize them. They can rely on stereotypes. And we really think that the act of essentializing immigrant communities, making their stories based on stereotypes and simplistic ideas of the immigrant experience, it really serves the power structures that oppress them. So we believe that by complicating the narrative around immigrant experiences, through really advocating for more authentic storytelling, we can really help the public better understand the situations of different immigrant communities and eventually, hopefully, advocate for better policies to serve those communities. And of course, the right is trying to shape their own narrative. And we're hearing a lot lately from the right about replacement theory. Can you tell us what that is? Unfortunately, I can. Uh, So the Great Replacement Theory actually was the central narrative umbrella that we found in our research. The killer left behind an 87-page manifesto titled The Great Replacement, in which he argued that the white race was dying out, being invaded and replaced by non-white immigrants. A few months later, that manifesto helped inspire a Texas man to walk into an El Paso Walmart with an assault weapon and begin shooting. He killed 23 people and wounded 23 more. It was, the New York Times reported, the deadliest anti-Latino attack 
in modern American history. And like the Christchurch shooter, the El Paso killer too cited the white supremacist Great Replacement Theory, writing that he was fighting a Hispanic invasion of Texas. These murders came two years after white nationalists bearing torches gathered in Charlottesville, Virginia, chanting, Jews will not replace us. And a year after another gunman murdered 11 people in a Pittsburgh synagogue, blaming Jews for bringing in an invasion of non-white immigrants to America. And not to jump ahead, but looked at the highest performing anti-immigration videos on YouTube in YouTube history. And what we found in that research is that the great replacement theory is really this narrative thread connecting the content. So basically the great replacement theory is that there is this conspiracy, this Jewish cabal of elites who are manipulating immigration policy so that mass amounts of people of color will flood the country. And use of the word flood is actually very intentional, essentially replacing the white population for political ends. The great replacement theory, it can be very subtle and it's not always in its totality. You don't always see all aspects of it represented in a narrative. But the essential idea is that people of color are replacing white Americans. And it also is pretty prominent in Europe. It actually imported from Europe this conspiracy theory. And that basically the migration of people of color is a threat to white people. How does something like that, how does a narrative like that start to unfold? And why is it so prominent today? One of the tools that people pushing the Great Replacement Theory rely on is census data. Really, ever since the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act, this country's demographics have been shifting. The implication is that because there's a demographic shift, there is necessarily this what's called a white genocide, the destruction of quote-unquote Western values. And with that goes security, law and order. A lot of times Christianity is thrown in there. What we see a lot of the time with this content is that the underpinnings is always based on fear and fear-mongering. The demographic shift that real data is pointed to as evidence of this nefarious, detrimental force in our country that will eventually really negatively impact white populations when there's actually no data for that. Define American recently released a report on how anti-immigrant media, especially on YouTube, affects people's perception of immigrants. Can you just dive a little deeper in that and tell us what else you found? Definitely. So I would say that our study really had three major focuses that resulted in some interesting findings. The first question we had was, is YouTube an important space for the immigration conversation? There was some research that came out, especially in the year 2018, that pointed to YouTube as a really important space for shaping views on social issues But YouTube actually is relatively understudied compared to Twitter or Facebook. So we wanted to know, is YouTube a very important space for this conversation? So we partnered with a research org called Change Research, and we polled likely voters in swing states who are regular YouTube viewers. We defined regular YouTube viewers as people who watch YouTube more than once a week. And what we found was basically, yes, YouTube is a really important space for this conversation. 19% of those polled changed their views on immigration based on content that they had seen on YouTube. And that number's higher with 18 to 34-year-olds at 25%. 
63% talked with friends or family about immigration after watching something on YouTube. And that number is really important to us. It's a really high number, obviously. But there was a similar study done by Norman Lear in 2018, looking at how traditional television impacted audiences' actions. And asking a similar question using TV as the mechanism, that statistic was 59%. So from these numbers at 63% is actually YouTube might be inciting more real-world action than even traditional television. 28% contacted a political representative and 21% changed their vote for a political representative based on immigration YouTube content. And I always caveat that by saying that's not necessarily switching from Republican to Democrat. It doesn't have to be a presidential election, but it's still really significant action just because you watch something on YouTube. How are people finding these YouTube videos? I mean, I can't imagine that people are doing a search. So is it the algorithm that is taking them down the rabbit hole? Like what is happening that people are finding these videos and they're having such impact? Algorithms, obviously a really important element here. And we don't have access to actually seeing how the algorithm is coded. But one way that we were able to diagram out how the algorithm is working is we looked at the audience viewership and where channels shared audiences. YouTube has over a billion users worldwide, and every day users watch a billion hours of content, generating billions of views. Perhaps we're glued to YouTube because of the videos that appear on autoplay that seem to magically pop up next. But it's not some librarian offering edifying suggestions here. The programming decisions are made by YouTube's algorithm, by AI. In the report, we have a data visualization looking at these channels that had produced the top performing anti-immigration videos. And we can really see how the audiences overlap between the channels. And that is a fairly useful tool for understanding how the algorithm moves and how audiences are shared between channels. And that actually is a perfect segue into our next major finding which was basically a map of anti-immigration content on the platform. We were able to identify the channels that have produced the top performing anti-immigration content of the last 15 years. And through using some marketing software, we were also able to see what channels those audiences are watching in addition. For example, one of the main channels producing anti-immigration content on YouTube is Prager University. We were able to see that channel has a lot of audience overlap with Fox News, which has a lot of audience overlap with a tremendous amount of mainstream channels. So you can see how if you're watching something on Fox News, maybe the next video you're recommended from the algorithm is a PragerU video, and all of a sudden you're being exposed to the great replacement theory. It's terrifying. But I feel like there's got to be some way that people are able to listen, to be able to discern when to get out, like when the rabbit hole is getting too deep, just based on like our own, you know, spidey senses almost like, ooh, this doesn't feel right. Why do people get so invested in them? What is the psychology 
between that investment and then also then spreading it. I think it's important to acknowledge that there is a tremendous amount of research that goes into persuasion and making this content feel accessible and safe to trust. So thinking about the larger context and how we're living in an age where people at historical levels do not trust traditional news media for their information. They're turning to spaces like YouTube. And the third finding in our report really focused on how this content is packaged, what it looks like, what it feels like. And what we found is that most of the content looks and feels very educational. It's almost academic and dry. And these are some of the tools that are used to get audiences Mm. to trust the messages. That's really interesting. Especially living in a world where I get asked so much to do PSAs or get out there. People maybe just trust the raw look and feel of something more so than if you do the bells and whistles. That's really interesting. And there's got to be, I would think, there's got to be a network, basically, which spreads similar lies and disinformation. Did you find other sources for that network and the way information is traveling? Is it coordinated? These are great questions. So I have to credit the researcher, Becca Lewis, and Data and Society. Her research into what she dubbed the Alternative Influencer Network was one of the pieces of scholarship that really inspired us to look at YouTube and conduct this research. Becca, who's at Stanford currently, She did the really deep dive of watching hundreds of far-right videos and created a network map of what she calls the Alternative Influencer Network. And this is looking at far-right alternative media ecosystem that lives on YouTube of influencers who are pushing an alternative media narrative. And she was able to map that network based on guest appearances. I actually don't want to name any of them, but one influencer has another influencer on their channel. They know that's going to boost their, not just their own viewership, but their algorithmic relationship. So what she was able to show through these guest appearances is that these alternative influencers on YouTube in particular are coordinated and they have a very robust ecosystem of a counter narrative to the news. Seems to be a theme right now in my life because I've been interviewing people specifically on the impact of social media on our young people. And so this is something that has been been heavy in my life for like the last three weeks. And it just leaves me with this very breathless feeling of not knowing how to beat this and combat this. I think the important thing about what you're doing is that you're giving people a way to say, no, there's another side to this. There's alternative narratives. But I feel like their strategy is so much more impactful because it's fear-based and it's not love-based. If it were love-based, I don't know if it would travel so far on the internet. That's just the world we live in. We've seen this theory, right, spouted by everyone from Tucker Carlson to our elected members of Congress, which is just chaos. So what do you think is the effect on our nation? I think there are so many effects and there's so many different dimensions to this. There's the public health effect. There's the how we know the detrimental effects, especially on the youth, that the disruptive technologies are having and mental health. There's um, the disintegration of trust in institutions that 
have historically held power accountable, specifically uh, the press. And that's the way it is. Friday, March 6, 1981. Journalist Walter Cronkite, once nicknamed the most trusted man in America. Fast forward to today, mistrust is more commonly associated with those in his position. According to a recent poll, just 24% of Americans trust TV anchors. Journalists as a whole don't rank much better at 26%. So what changed? Let's start by understanding how trust works. We trust people and institutions we're close to. Polling shows Americans have more trust in their local government than their state government, and more trust in their state government than those at the federal level. The more local, the more trusted. The same goes for news. A Knight Foundation and Gallup poll found Americans trust local news more than national news. But recently, Americans are getting less local news. Almost 1,800 newspapers have closed since 2004. At Define American, our focus is really on the narrative. I'll try to contain my answer to that because really the effects of these new technologies and their lack of regulation on the public, it's is many dissertations worth of a subject matter. But I would say in terms of narrative, social media has really conflated freedom of speech with freedom of reach. I didn't make that up. But that phrase that freedom of speech is not freedom of reach, 92% of the content is coming from 10% of users on Twitter. So we're having a disproportionate public forum. People holding the loudest megaphones are the extremists, people that have these really supposedly outside the mainstream views. But if those are the views represented then it starts to impact the quote-unquote mainstream, the larger populace. So I think that one of the effects of these social platforms, especially when they're not moderated, is that you're having really extremist viewpoints have a far louder voice than they would if we were operating in a more traditional space, right? Because they're actually a smaller part of the population originally, but their voices are loud enough to really impact the whole national conversation. And it seems like the network specifically is designed to dehumanize people who are not white, native-born Americans. And I just am so consistently flabbergasted and amazed how we are not past this kind of hate already. Yeah, I think that it's such an entrenched narrative in our history in this country. We found in the content that there were really two central stereotypes that this content relied on the undocumented Latinx border crosser and the legal immigration system was attacked through asylum-seeking secret Muslim terrorists. So we really had two really racist stereotypes that were held up as the archetypes in this content. I, I think that, again, when you're seeing these arguments that are essentializing entire groups of people into stereotypes, Speaking to your question earlier about how can we, how can our spidey senses detect when we're being exposed to mis and disinformation, I think that essentializing is a really important indicator. I interviewed Heather McGee last week and she said something which was so profound. I can't stop thinking about it, which is the stories we are told is who we become. And I think that's so right on, except we're not being told stories from a place of love or being told stories from a place of fear so that people can, you know, use our fear to pass hurtful policy to spread disinformation and hate. And I often wonder if it is possible that we could be a democracy when we live in this time of the internet and information spreading and social media. So I think 
my question to you is, what is the responsibility of social media and the networks and the owners of social media to stop the hate from spreading on their platforms? I agree with what Heather said and with what you said. And I would even take it a step further that these are stories, not just based on hate, but I would say based on profit. Can you take us through what social media content algorithms have done? Uh, Sure. Yeah. So the social media content algorithms, right, they decide what you read and what you watch. And they do that for literally billions of people for hours every day. Right. Um, So in that sense, they have more control over human cognitive input than any dictator in history has ever had. More than Stalin, more than Kim Il-sung, more than Hitler. Right. They have massive uh, power over human beings. There are always going to be these nefarious actors in a society, but the reason the algorithm even has this rabbit hole capability, and that's referencing the algorithm's use of extreme content to get viewers to stay on the platform longer. So maybe you look up a video about cats, as so many of us do, and uh, before you know it, you're watching something extreme and like, how did I get here? The algorithm's designed that way to keep people on the platform longer because their testing has shown that by upping the level of the content, extreme messaging, you can get viewers to stay on the platform longer. That's based on a profit model. They can sell more ads if they have more engagement on these platforms. So we're really looking at social platforms that are really putting profit and capital above public's well-being. And I do think until that's addressed, and I think it has to happen through one of the mechanisms we have in a democracy is regulation. Until there is true tech accountability, we're going to just continue having these challenges. Now, my organization, we don't focus on the policy. We're, as I said, a narrative change organization. And I do think that there are tools that storytellers and content creators can be utilizing and at this moment are underutilized. Tell me about those. For example, we can see in this map the channels people who are being exposed to this extreme content are watching. Those, in my mind, as a content creator myself, are entry points to reach them. If people are not showing the same trust in traditional news sources as they used to, where are they turning to for trust? Our research shows that social media influencers have a tremendous amount of public trust. So to me, I've been thinking about content creators and social media influencers as modern day local organizers. And of course, local organizers in the traditional sense still exist and do incredibly important work. But I also think that organizing in the digital sphere can start to think about these uh, center points of influence as opportunities to reach people in an arena where they already have trust in the messenger. We did a test in our research to look at messengers who Who kind of holds the public trust now that a lot of traditional institutions are having challenges with public trust? And we found that the, not to get too in the weeds about this methodology, but we had four videos that were exactly the same, same speaker, and we just changed the title on the bottom of the videos, the Chiron. So in one video, he was a Princeton professor. In another, he was a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. We didn't put the publication because we know people have biases against different publications. So he's just an accomplished journalist. And then we had a social media influencer, and then we had someone with no credentials at all. 
And what we found was the professor and the journalist were viewed as qualified to talk about immigration, but they weren't significantly trusted much more than with someone with no Chiron at all. That obviously is a reality that has been exploited on social media, right? You have people without credentials who have a tremendous amount of public trust to talk about these really important social issues that maybe in the past we would want somebody who has more training or more credentials to speak on. However, there is also an opportunity because there's some... um, accessibility issues with traditional credentials as well, right? So if you think about social media influencers as actually having this tremendous opportunity to mobilize their viewers and to organize online, we've seen this happen, right? We've seen some of the most important movements of our time came from social media, Black Lives Matter, the Arab Spring. So I, this research is doom and gloom. I totally acknowledge that. But I think there are some real reasons to have hope as well. Let's talk about what my listeners who are content creators, what can they create that would counteract what's happening right now? I do have to plug our toolkit. So out of this research, we developed a toolkit that can be found at defineamerican.com that has a list of tips and recommendations. Let's foreground positive stories about Muslim American communities. If we want to talk about immigration, it's really important to talk about religious tolerance as part of that conversation. Let's talk about immigration in terms of a global context. This is the most ridiculous thing that I still remember about the whole process was asking insecure college students what their biggest passion was. Like, do you expect me to have an answer for that? Of course I did. And to be quite honest, I really showed those recruiters just how passionate I was by telling them all about my early interest in the global economy, which conveniently stemmed from the conversations that I would overhear my immigrant parents having about money and the fluctuating value of the Mexican peso. And that's important from a narrative standpoint because the other side is doing that. When they talk about immigration, they couch it in terms of the global migration crisis and they really zoom out when they're having this discourse. So if we're not also playing on a global stage, then we're kind of ceding that territory to the other side. So we have a list of recommendations for content creators around how the messages that we think will actually take on some of the narratives that are coming from the other side. I think one of the big findings with the content, watching this content, to your point earlier about they have fear on their side and that's palpable and powerful. It is. But I think one of the things that's happening is we're just not even we're not having the same conversation. We're just, the filter bubbles are making it so that we're just having completely different discourses. So if their assertions are essentially remaining unchallenged within their filter bubbles, then I think they have a lot more opportunity to grow more powerful. We at Define American, we're really committed to combating the great replacement theory on social media and taking it head on, actually looking at the arguments that are being disseminated on these channels and refuting them. Because we do have the facts on our side. These aren't arguments we need to shy away from. So I think that 
Understanding the language of the other side is important. Of course, you don't want to concede to their framing, but I think one of the problems right now with a lot of social justice spaces, efforts for communication strategies, we're not even talking in the same language as the other side. So we're not reaching their audiences. And I think those audiences are important for us to speak to as well. So important. And the other thing that's important is speaking to each other in person, in real life. How do you think we should be talking to people in our families or neighborhoods or communities who have perhaps been taken in the great replacement networks and the propaganda? How do we talk to our families and friends? I think this is really difficult. I find this really hard with my own family. All I can say for our research is that, you know, really understanding that these viewpoints come from a place of fear. I think that we know there's obviously racism and hate, but I think sometimes when we're talking about the hate, we're we're not focusing enough on the fear. And these conversations, there's a lot of fear-based messaging and logic that goes into these viewpoints. So addressing some of those fears as a starting point, I think might be a good way to start those conversations. If you believe that, if you actually believe in the great replacement theory, that's terrifying that you're losing your country, you're losing your culture, you're losing your power. Bringing some statistics that actually offer a little bit of security to the person and assuring them that those forces actually are not a threat to them, that a plural identity has always been part of our history and it's part of our strength really focusing on positive contributions for a diverse American identity, I think is a good way to have these conversations. And then also, you know, my boss, Jose, always says you don't bring facts to a culture war. There's truth to that. But I also do think some of this stuff just needs to be refuted. The mis- and disinformation strategies just rely on straight up lies. And it's important to have some facts in those conversations, not to like in a malicious way, shut down the other side, but to kind of reassure them that their fears are unfounded. And I fear that even facts is a gray area nowadays. Finally, what gives you hope? This is a cliche, but I do get a lot of hope from young people. I think Gen Z is rejecting a lot of the structures and bullshit (laughs) that we've put up with for decades in this country. I think that their commitment to climate activism, to gun control, the advances we've seen with gender fluidity in this generation, I think that Gen Z gives me hope. And I'm really excited to see their activism and their kind of identity as a generation contribute to these fights and this conversation. Well, Shauna, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you, Alyssa. I really appreciate it. That's because for the most part, we want to see ourselves as idealists and as people who do what they believe in and pursue the things that they find the most exciting. But the reality is very few of us actually have the privilege to do that. Now, I can't speak for everyone, but... This is especially true for young immigrant professionals like me. And the reason this is true has something to do with the narratives that society has kept hitting us with in the news, in the workplace, and even by those annoyingly self-critical voices in our heads. The fact that there is a coordinated network of hateful liars directed against immigrants to the United States is disgusting. 
The fact that this network is so influential and so harmful is terrifying. Here's the problem with hate. They use stories that are based in fear, and fear moves people. They know this, and they exploit it. They know that there are people, actual human people, behind the lies and hate they spread, and they do it anyway. We need to tell better stories, true human stories. We need to rekindle empathy and compassion and extinguish the hate mongers. We need to elect people who are immune to the lies of the anti-immigration extremists. When we take away their access to power, we take away so much of their ability to do harm. So keep that in mind when you're voting. You can change the narrative, and in doing so, change the world. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.